Let's talk about Popper and Rand. They only engage with each other on epistemology in minimal ways. Most of what each of them says is just separate than the other and compatible. So like what Rand says about concept formation, Popper doesn't talk about that issue. Popper talks about other things. Popper has nothing to say about measurement omission. Popper has nothing to say about chewing ideas and integrating ideas and the, the spiral stuff. I think he would like a lot of those ideas that he would find they're useful and fit with his way of thinking pretty well. And then when Popper talks about evolutionary epistemology and critical discussion, that is stuff that Rand did not talk about a lot. Um, also fallibility. Rand did not emphasize fallibility. She says a few positive things about it, also a couple negative ones, and she doesn't really talk about it much. So I think that they're, to a large extent, they were working on different problems in epistemology. It's a really big field. There's space for people to work on different issues. So there's only a few limited points of contradiction um, whereas most of their work uh, is actually just compatible and separate rather than rival ideas. So the points of contradiction are somewhat difficult to talk about because Rand wrote almost nothing about induction and I don't super trust Peikoff's version. And I, you can more clearly find uh, Popper and Peikoff disagreements but that's not the same thing as Popper and Rand. I don't want to give Peikoff the status of whatever he says as objectivism. But I will still try to talk about it some and what some of the differences and disagreements are. So Popper rejects induction and offers a solution which is a different approach. It's an evolutionary epistemology. The Popperian view is we learn by a trial and error process with the steps being roughly have a problem, brainstorm solutions, criticize the solutions, and reach a new problem situation. Um, tentatively accept a solution and then you get a new problem situation and you can work on some new problem next. Um, some way that you want the solution to be even better or some other problem and it's uh, kind of an infinite cycle of learning. Um, this may sound very uh, vague and not very scientific or rigorous but it is worked out in a lot of detail and the approach follows the logic of evolution not as an analogy but literally. Um, the reason knowledge is being created by this process is that it is replication with variation and selection. So Popper's two big points are one, the solution to the problem of induction. What do we do instead of induction in order to learn? And um, his criticism of induction. The criticism is less original but he still does a better job with it than previous thinkers. Criticizing induction is really tricky because inductivists vary so much 
And the versions of induction that are familiar to people today are extremely defensive. They've had centuries of criticism that they're trying to evade, rationalize, or somehow deal with. And so they do a bad job of being clear and sticking their neck out. They make themselves hard to criticize and hard to talk about. Now, it's not Rand that I'm accusing that of because she didn't do that. Um, she just didn't try to explain induction. But that is what it's like when you talk to inductivists today, is it's very hard to pin them down on exactly what they mean. And they've there are evolved strategies for how to have wiggle room. The basic idea of induction is you take data sets, you start with observations, and then you extrapolate patterns and you predict the patterns are likely to continue into the future. That's a fairly modern version that I think a lot of inductivists would recognize. And this is completely wrong. Every single new data point, as a matter of logic, continues infinitely many patterns and breaks infinitely many patterns. And inductivists pay selective attention to specific patterns. They pick some out and they say, look, we're, we have evidence of this pattern. And they ignore that the same evidence is equally compatible with infinitely many other patterns. And so part of the problem of induction is like, which patterns do you pay attention to of the infinitely many patterns? Another part is how do you define what counts as a pattern as against a non-pattern. And there's very hard problems there and there's no answers. And there have been claims to have answers, um, but they've never worked out. Another way to look at it is induction is the idea that evidence supports arguments or evidence supports ideas or claims. And normally it is evidence supports a uh, claims by a certain amount. Some things are strong evidence, some things are weak evidence. Whether you attach numbers to it or not, there's like a, an amount of support that is conveyed to a, an idea or claim or conclusion by some piece of evidence. And this whole system does not work. It has fundamental logical problems with it and it cannot work at all. The basic problem is there is no way to define which pieces of evidence support which ideas how much in a consistent way that gets results anything like what people want or anything like common sense. Objectivists in general are not very familiar with these problems. Other inductivists um, often know a lot more about them and have uh, grappled with them more and have more to say about them. Whereas with inductivists, I often find that they just deny some of these problems that are well known um, even to inductivists. Like you can read some of these points in pro-induction books um, that a lot of objectivists just aren't yet at the level of being aware of. They have a hard time understanding things like that any finite data set is compatible with infinitely many theories leading to every conclusion.
that data is not as restrictive from a logical standpoint as they think it is. Another similar issue is what's the difference between this piece of evidence does not contradict that claim and this piece of evidence supports that claim? My answer is there is no difference. No one has come up with any kind of coherent meaning of support that differs from fails to contradict. Anyway, I don't think any of this is threatening to objectivism as a philosophical system. Um, Ayn Rand thought that we could learn somehow, we could pursue the truth somehow, science worked somehow, etc. And she thought the name of the somehow was induction. And I say the name is evolutionary epistemology. And the details are different. And the result is more or less the same. That it fills the same role that they wanted induction to fill. And so nothing else that depended on induction breaks because you have a different tool to accomplish the same purpose. Also, there's my own development of Popper, which involves reaching clear yes or no answers to problems, partly by clarifying the problems. Um, by making the questions you ask less vague, you can get more black and white answers, and that's better. And I think that's something objectivism should sympathize with. Um, instead of Peikoff categorizing ideas as arbitrary, plausible, possible, likely, certain, I categorize ideas into two categories, refuted and non-refuted. And it reminds me of the scenes in Atlas Shrugged, where several times heroes are trying to get yes or no answers out of people, and villains do not want to be that clear or black and white. A lot of people mix up black and white answers or absolute answers with infallibility, with being absolutely 100% sure you're right, or that kind of thing. But that is a confusion. You can use your best judgment and reach an answer and say yes instead of no, and still know that you're a fallible human being. You don't have to say, well, I'm 80% sure. Um, that's not the right way to deal with fallibility or non-omniscience. That's just hedging. Hedging doesn't help. Um, so I think it's very important that it's possible to reach decision points, and I think my epistemology is better, the, better at that than PCOS, at reaching actual decisions and conclusions. Um, Peikoff talks about certainty a lot. Ayn Rand did too. So I think that they're using the wrong word. Um, certainty sounds like it means infallibility. And I think it's misleading, and I think we live in a society where so many people are infallibilist, and there's so many errors of that type that using the word certain is really misleading to a lot of people and has caused a lot of problems. But um, if you really try to understand what they mean, I don't think their point is infallibilism, which would just blatantly contradict some other things they said. I think what they mean by certain is 
um, what you might call a decision point, like reaching a conclusion instead of saying, I don't know, I'm not sure yet. Um, I think the point is that your knowledge needs to reach a state of actually being able to act on it, of actually, I've, I've made my judgment and I'm now I'm going to act and think about something else. Um, you need to reach the point where you make a decision, where you move on, where you're not just infinitely hesitating and unsure. And so I think we can achieve that. And I agree about that, although I would not use the term certainty for it. And I do not think induction is good for achieving that. Um, because induction in the modern versions is trying to build up support for ideas a little at a time, and you never really get all the way there. And it's just probabilities instead of black and white answers. And where's the cutoff? Like, do you, do you make a decision when you reach like 70% probability, 75%, 80%? Um, that's all very blurry. So I think I have a better approach than that, that is actually more in line with Ayn Rand's way of thinking about the world and the kinds of attitudes she liked, like actually having decisive answers and absolutes. I think induction neglects critical argument. It's a way for people to evade arguments. They say, okay, well, you made an argument against it, so I will lower its score a bit. I'll lower its probability a bit. Um, I will lower the amount of support that I think this claim has. And that lets them not give a rebuttal to the argument and keep believing the conclusion that you just argued against. And I think that's really bad. I think that if an argument, if a claim is criticized, you have to either address the criticism or reject the claim, um, not just uh, subtract some, some, some support points. I think the proper way to deal with debate and argument is to focus on only on criticisms that are either decisive, there are reasons that the idea is broken, it does not work, you should reject it 100%, or, or else the criticism's incorrect, you can reject the criticism. But I think it should go one way or the other, and you should actually make a judgment. And there is a, there are details on how to do this, including my yes or no philosophy at yesornophilosophy.com. And including in particular, um, so one other thing to say about Popper is he's very hard to read. Um, I don't blame him for this. I think he is a much better writer than most. Not the best. Ayn Rand's a better writer, but he's pretty good. Um, he made a real effort to write well. And the, the main reason he's hard to read is that it's hard material. And he made a, a breakthrough solving the problem of induction. And he did not fully digest his own breakthrough. He didn't work out all of the details. He didn't have it 100% figured out. Um, I think he did enough. You know, I think he did a lot and it was good work. But it, he didn't uh, fully polish everything up and make it easy to understand. And also for the same reason, you get differences in what he says at different times in his life. Um, he got better over time as he figured it out more. And a lot of the criticism of Popper is focused on the logic of scientific discovery, one of his early books, which is just not as good and doesn't do a good job of explaining his best ideas. And yet that is what critics focus on. Because, I mean, in some cases, I think they're looking for an easier target. They just, they want to reject Popper, so they try to find his worst work and attack that. But in a lot of cases, I think it's they don't know better 
um, they don't know what they should be reading and they're, they're not familiar with all of Popper's work, so they're not able to pick out the best stuff. And so they go like, which is the most famous book? And they, they look at that one um, because Popper is unpopular and the people determining like which book of Popper you've heard of are not his friends. Anyways, so the best ways to understand Popper um, are, uh, besides my work, is through David Deutsch, which is how I learned about Popper. He has two books, The Fabric of Reality and The Beginning of Infinity. Both of them contain some summaries of a lot of Popper's most important ideas. And he's a better writer than Popper, and he uh, improved on Popper a bit. He organized it a bit better. He um, generally cleaned it up. Like he didn't make any like major changes or major breakthroughs or anything. He just made it all a little bit better and easier to understand and nicer and fixed some inconsistencies and so on. So basically he went through Popper's books and digested it so you don't have to. And then for Popper's own writing, if you go to fallibleideas.com, at the top, click on books, and then click on Popper. And I will walk you through which little selections of Popper text to read. You know, a chapter here, a part of a chapter there. Because reading Popper straight through is hard, and for most people it doesn't work that well. But if you just read the cherry-picked best little pieces here and there, um, then altogether you can read a lot less pages and get actually a lot more value from it. And the focus of the selections is on epistemology. It's on his best stuff. I think that only a handful of people have ever read Popper's books and then understood Popper well from his books, rather than from uh, you know being Popper's student uh, at university or uh, getting help from Popper's students or something else. Or in my case, I got I learned about Popper from David Deutsch, uh, from his books, and from many conversations. Rather, and then I only read Popper later when I already had a pretty good idea of what Popper said. So, um, the people who have actually read Popper's books straight through, digested it, understood it. Um, it. It's a really short list because Popper defies thousands of years of tradition of how to think about these things. He has a majorly different idea. And so there's been a lot of confusion about that. Um, I can only name two people who I think have done that, uh, David Deutsch and Richard Feynman. And Feynman did not write uh, explanations of Popper, unfortunately. All right, well, that's enough for now. Um, please ask questions. And I'll follow up. I'm sure I left out some important things, so ask some questions and I will elaborate on what needs more elaborating.